So Friday night, Amy and I turned on a movie. We decided to watch a, you know, it's a classic. Now it's a classic, A Few Good Men. Uh, and it struck me, you know, so Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholas. And it struck me watching this. Uh, here you have this antagonist, Colonel Nathan Jessup, right? And the, the whole idea is that there's this suspicion that he gave this illegal order to his men to punish another soldier and that that led unintentionally to that soldier's death, but it was an illegal order that was given, right, that led to murder. So these troops are on charge for manslaughter, for murder, and yet this, the suspicion is this guy, this Nathan Jessup, this antagonist, this villain, was, was given the, the order. And so that's where you get this courtroom scene where it's like, you want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth, right? And in the midst of all that, what you find is, you know, it struck me watching, you see this antagonist who's angry, who's bitter, who's arrogant. He's grumbling, he's complaining that he has to show up in court, you know. He doesn't think that, he thinks he's above all of this. He's been subpoenaed to come and give testimony before a jury. He's not on trial. But in his world, he's used to being in charge, he's used to being in control, right? And here you have a situation where, all of a sudden, He's not the man in authority, but he still thinks he is, right? And the attorney has to be careful because if he accuses him of a crime, he can be court-martialed himself. But he also knows, you know, I think this guy wants to admit the crime because I don't think he thinks he can do any wrong, right? So you see this anger, this bitterness, this attitude until finally he comes forth and, and confesses. And, and so you watch this and you think it's a movie. And at the same time, it's real. This gives us a glimpse into reality. I mean, imagine with me a situation in which a defendant comes before the judge in a courtroom. As he does this, the defendant believes himself to have the same authority as the judge, or even more authority in some sense than the judge, to be able to determine whether or not the judge in this case has authority over them. Those kinds of things happen in the real world, and it inevitably leads the defendant to angry ranting about what in his mind constitutes the unjust treatment he's receiving in the courtroom. And the reason it inevit inevitably leads in all the cases in which this happens to angry rant ranting and usually, you know, it leads to, to being contempt in court, uh, called into contempt in court, is that they believe they should be the one in control, that he has the right to set himself up as judge over the judge, the one who should be calling the shots. And of course that's so outside the realm of reality that uh, when this individual meets reality, and he will, usually with the charge of contempt, the only response is to grumble, is to get angry. As sideways and as seemingly impossible as that scenario appears, we actually see it playing out for us on the pages of John 6. So if you remember from last week, set your eyes on John 6. Let's look at some of the context. This is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. This crowd followed Jesus, and in last week's te text, they ask him questions about how he got to the other side of the lake so quickly. Do you remember there was, a, there was a question beneath their question, a question under the question? Namely, did Jesus perform another sign? Did he do another miracle? They have signs on the brain. More than that, they have, they have bread on the brain. They want to be fed again. They're thinking with their stomachs. Their stomachs were filled the day before. They want more. And so Jesus then points them, no, 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 no. There's a reality beneath the miracle, a foundation to the miracle, the one performing the miracle, that all these signs are intended 
to point to. And he says, it's me. I do these signs to point you to the reality of who I am and what I've come to do. He calls out the crowd's wrong-headed motives and just wanting physical bread. He challenges them to pursue him, the true bread, the only bread that can satisfy. And so then he calls their attention finally to the claim at the base of the narrative, I am the bread of life. So if you're interested in hearing more about what happened in last week's text, which, listen, it will be important to understand fully what's happening in this week's text, go back and listen, Apple Podcast, Spotify Podcast. But here in the text, you have this exchange that continues, the exchange continues, the dialogue continues, and in particular, we see how the people respond to this claim. And we see the response drawn out really in three parts of the narrative, three stages, three parts of the narrative, starting in verses 41 to 42, but as we set our eyes there, let me pray. Lord, even as we come to the text this morning, many of our hearts might be grumbling against you. Many of our hearts might be our hearts might be um, sad this morning, struggling, troubled for a whole host of reasons. And some of these circumstances might cause in our hearts anger against you. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see your grace and mercy toward us. That we might see and believe what it is that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. So, People's response, three parts of the narrative. First, we see a grumbling spirit, verses 41 to 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So do you remember last week, okay? The Jewish people are attempting to, this crowd that's following Jesus, they're attempting to draw Jesus' memory Back to the wilderness, back to their forefathers, when their forefathers were in the wilderness with Moses, they were like, you know, remember they were saying, Jesus, you know, Moses, the prophet, he fed, a, he fed our forefathers every day with manna. The Lord used him to bring about this miracle every day. Do you remember this? And so they're, they're trying to bring Jesus' mind back to when Israel's in the wilderness, God provided bread from heaven, but then they begin to do exactly the same thing that their forefathers did in the wilderness, both before and after God provided this bread. It's remarkable. John uses the exact same language to describe their response that the writer of Exodus and Numbers uses throughout that account. I'll give you an example out of Exodus. It reads, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So once again, you have the people's minds set on hunger, their minds set on bread, and they're grumbling against the Lord, just like we have in John 6. And you know, there's an irony in the grumbling of God's people in the wilderness who've been freed from slavery... But now after, they, they talk about slavery like it was the good old days, you know. We were sitting around these big pots of meat. I was eating all this bread. It was so awesome. You know, they're talking about slavery like it was awesome. The irony is that all of a sudden, even after, you know, even after the, the great signs they've seen through God's prophet in bringing miraculous plagues against Israel, 
demonstrating God's power through signs in front of Pharaoh, demonstrating God's power through salvation of God's people at Passover, and then demonstrating his power over nature, the military might of Egypt, by parting the Red Sea that they might cross safely and then crashing that sea down upon the chariots pursuing them. And after all that, they grumble because they think they know better than God. They question his plan. They set themselves up as judges over the way God is moving things forward. That's what's happening in Exodus. And there's a similar irony in the people's response to Jesus now because all of a sudden, even after they've seen these signs of him, these miraculous signs of him healing the sick, performing miracles, even one day, like we talked about last week, this happened yesterday. Yesterday he fed the 5,000 with five loaves. They, cr- they grumble because they think they know better than Jesus. They question him. They set themselves up as judge over him. Think of it this way. Back in chapter 5, so do you remember this? We'll see it again. So like a lot of these themes re- will repeat. But back in chapter 5, the Jews in Jerusalem were upset about Jesus' claims. And do you remember why? They were upset because they recognized what he was saying. What he, was, what he was teaching was clear. They recognized he was saying things that would make him equal with God. He was teaching and saying things that unless he was God, those things were blasphemous. Okay? But this Jewish audience in Galilee, they're not so much upset with his claims to be God. They're more upset with the fact that he claims to be God and yet he's, kind of, he's, he's pushing back against them and departing from their agenda. They'd be fine with him being God so long as he was God doing what they wanted to do and we'll see more evidence of that next week. Okay? So it's not so much blasphemy they're, they're upset about. It seems that they recognize some of the connections between I am, I am the bread of life in this claim of divinity. But the primary reason they're upset is because Jesus is claiming to be authority over them. You know, they're upset because here's Jesus, you know, he's a fellow Galilean. From their perspective, he's getting way too big for his britches. Since he's a Galilean like they are, they take offense at the claim that he could somehow make these claims to be sent from God to do differently from what they think he should be doing, you know? Look at it again. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? So they're saying, whoa, 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 Jesus, slow down, back up. You forget. You forget. We knew your dad. We know your, your mom. We, we know your family. You're one of us. And you know, since Galileans are generally looked down upon and despised by those in Jerusalem, just because all of a sudden you've gained this following doesn't mean you're so much better than us. Doesn't mean you have this authority over us. What gives you the right to talk as though you're from heaven? We're able, we're able to evaluate you, Jesus, to examine your claims to determine the truth about you. That's the idea. There's, there's this grumbling spirit, and it's a grumbling spirit that's generated, if you look at your notes, by a deep reliance on the human heart. That's what's bringing this about. A deep reliance on themselves. Themselves as authority. Their ability to discern. That's ultimately where a grumbling spirit finds its root. You know, like Israel grumbled against God in the wilderness in Exodus and Numbers 
because they thought they knew better than God. They thought they were able to rightly examine God and evaluate what he was doing to determine whether or not it was a good or bad idea. And from their perspective, he wasn't leading them too well. And you know, hey, what does that remind us of? Sin coming into the world, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are in a similar situation where they think they can rightly examine God to evaluate whether or not his instructions to them are good or bad, whether or not they should really obey, okay? And here the, the crowd in John 6 is doing much the same thing, grumbling against God because they think they can evaluate him and discern for themselves. And we continue to do it today. And listen, I, so just pastorally, I want to differentiate here between a grumbling spirit that's brought about by thinking we know better than God and really the deep questioning that we have for God in the midst of suffering. That second one, that's not what this passage is about. These people are not grumbling out of like a specific instance of suffering in which they don't understand what God is doing or how he's working and, you know, they're, they're really struggling and wrestling and we, see, we actually see throughout the Psalms a lamenting in which the psalmist will ask those kinds of questions. How long, O oh Lord, will you allow this to continue? That kind of wrestling in the midst of our faith. That's not what... We'll, we'll see passages in John that deal more with that. John chapter 9, John chapter 11. You know, the raising of Lazarus, the healing of the blind man. We'll see passages that deal with our suffering. But, uh, you know, lament is a good and godly category. It's not grumbling to lament. The grumbling spirit here is not lamenting. Here in John 6, it's a grumbling spirit in which we determine that we can follow the intuition of our own hearts over against the revealed word of God. That's the idea. The idea that our hearts are a reliable guide. The idea that we think we're able to evaluate God. We, we attempt to stand as judge over him. We think we know better than him, you know, when we look at his, we look at his word. Because we position ourselves on par with him. We see God more as a colleague than as creator. You know, we see ourselves more as a colleague than creation. And even if we wouldn't go so far as to say colleague, we'd, we'd almost like say an employee who's able to, you know, chat back a little bit. Right? Like we're, we're God's PR manager. Where he'll say some things and we're like, look, you creation thing great job um, a lot of things really good but when I read this God whew, that's just let's walk this back let's find a way to walk this back you know like honestly this tends to happen the most when it comes to places in God's revelation to us in the scriptures in which we struggle to understand why God has said such a thing why he's commanded something why something that he says is sinful it's sinful. It maybe offends us at first. Maybe it cuts against our cultural sensibilities. And so we position ourselves in such a way that for God to cut against my cultural sensibilities in this world, it's just, it's just a bridge too far. You know? I can't do that. Yeah. The late, great Tim Keller, and this is actually the first time I've spoken of him since he passed a few weeks ago of cancer, he planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in the late 1980s to reach skeptics. And, you know, influenced me in a major way. I'm not sure that I would have planted a church without the writings and preaching of Tim Keller. Um, 
He left a legacy behind, but he would routinely challenge skeptics, have conversations with skeptics, and would consistently call this out in particular, what we're discussing this morning in particular, and talk about how huge the cost is. Like, it's not just offensive, it's, it's dangerous. It, it comes at a cost to not allow God to say things with which we disagree. So Keller writes this, and I, I think I quoted this even somewhat recently, but let's, I think it's really appropriate to revisit it in this text in particular, and I'll, I'm condensing it more this time. He says, if we let our unexamined beliefs undermine our confidence in the Bible, the cost may be greater than we think. It comes at a cost, he says. What's that? Well, he says, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate personal relationship. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibilities and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, and I might add to that since Tim wrote this, if you pick and choose what you want to believe and reinterpret the rest to suddenly mean what you want it to mean, right? How will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God. A God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a personal and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you've gotten a hold of a real God and not just a figment of your own imagination. And then he says this, concludes this way. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It's the precondition for it. An authoritative Bible, a Bible that's able to tell us things that cuts against our cultural sensibilities, it's not the enemy of a personal relationship. It's not something that should say, oh, I can't deal with that. You're going to say that? And so we walk away. It's the precondition for it. It's necessary for us to have that kind of relationship. And yet here we see that the natural disposition of the people in John 6 is a grumbling spirit brought about by reliance on the human heart, reliance on ourselves. What does Jesus have to say about that? Well, this is where we now see his response. So we, we go from this reliance on the human heart, this grumbling spirit, to now a grace-centered response a grace-centered response pointing to reliance on God's mercies. From a grumbling spirit to now a grace-centered response. Because listen, as Keller just helped us see, the grumbling spirit wasn't just wrong-headed. It came at a cost. It was dangerous. And the reason it was dangerous is because it presupposed that what God says, you know, divine revelation to us could be discovered by us relying on ourselves. And so Jesus responds... You know, he, he doesn't just respond by telling them not to grumble. He shows them the true antidote to grumbling. Because think about that for a minute. You know, like, Jesus doesn't just give an instruction that they now have to figure out how to obey on their own strength. That would be pretty counter, counterproductive, you know? How could that possibly be an antidote to self-reliance? It's like that old Bob Newhart sketch where he plays this therapist. People would come into his office with a problem. Someone would say... Oh, I'm, I'm claustrophobic. It's horrible. I get so panicked in closed-off spaces. And Bob Newhart would, you know, playing the counselor across from the desk, he'd say, okay, well, I have two words for you that if you just really ingrain into your everyday life, it'll fix everything. Stop it. 
Stop it. Okay. Except in this case, in John 6, that would be even more pronounced because the problem itself is relying on your own strength and ability to do something. So, so your problem is you rely on your own strength for spiritual transformation? Stop it. You know, like, it's not going to work. So, of course, Jesus doesn't just give them a prohibition on grumbling, but he deals with the root cause underneath the grumbling. How? Well, look at verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. And here it is. Here's the antidote to grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, in order to stop grumbling, you need to fully rely on God's grace. Grumbling gives way to, uh, grace gives, let's all grumbling fade away. Grumbling gives way to grace. You need to fully rely on his mercies. People can only come to me Jesus says, if the Father draws them. In other words, it's all grace. It's sheer grace. There is not, listen, listen, Jesus' teaching we see backed up throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament. There is no means of coming to Jesus on your own effort, on your own ability, by way of your own knowledge, your own decision making, your own discernment, your own character. It's all grace. It's sheer grace. It's the drawing of the Father so that the scales, you know, by way of the Spirit of God, so the scales that are on our eyes fall off and we can finally see. He brings sight, not us. He generates that, not us. How? His grace, and more specifically, his grace in revealing Jesus to us. So look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets... And they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus mercifully, in the midst of hard-heartedness, in the midst of this continued plea for more signs, this frivolous faith, in the midst of grumbling against him, he still mercifully shows the people here how his spirit works, like what it is that the Father accomplishes in our hearts. He draws us, and he does this through this internal, this internal illumination, God revealing himself through the prophets, through his words so that we can see. The spirit of God working through the word of God so that we can see the truth about who God is, and we're going to have more to say about that next week. But this is calling their attention back to the word to Isaiah 54, in which the prophet writes, all your sons will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace. This ultimately points to the Father's work in Jesus. That the Lord teaches his people through his own self-revelation, the word become flesh, the only one who's seen the Father, the one who comes from heaven. It stands as the primary reason, by the way, that the ministry of the word is the central ministry of the church. But again, more to say on that next week. Okay, next week. Here we see it's only by faith in him that we might have life. Not by resting in our own effort, but resting in his effort. And I think John Lightfoot, in his commentary, really summarizes this well for us. He, he, he writes, so long as a man remains, I'm going to read this a couple of times. So long as a man remains and is content to remain, Confident in his own ability, without divine help, 
to assess experience and the meaning of experience, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe. Do you hear this? So long as a man remains and is content to remain confident in his own ability, self-reliant, reliant on the human heart, confident in his own ability without divine help to assess experience and the meaning of experience, setting ourselves up as judge over God and over his word, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe. And then he says, only the Father can move him to this step with its incalculable and final results. I mean, as we've seen before, even just the last few weeks, this kind of sheer grace can be frightening. I said I was going to come back to it. And, and it's here that we see that addressed. Because, if, you know, if I'm not saved by something I do, if I have no confidence in my own ability to save me, without divine help, to assess, if I have no ability without divine help to assess an experience, to, to assess my experience and the meaning of my experience, then I'm completely without any control, you know? And, and if God is standing there doing everything, and I can do nothing, I can do nothing, nothing that I do is of any value, but he's doing, he's sta standing there, and he's done everything, then he's in complete control. And so if the Christian faith is rooted in sheer grace, he can truly ask anything of me. And man, that is scary. That's a frightening place to be. That's an exposed, vulnerable place to be. But Jesus wants, again, out of mercy and love, he wants his, his hearers and John's readers to know that his grace is given, that we might be satisfied in him, that we might find joy in him, that we might be filled up by him. Not that we might come to him in terror. What might you ask of me next? And so it's the perfect time for him to reiterate this I am statement that he made last week. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, more to be said on that last part in a minute. But Jesus is saying here, he's come that we might, that, that humanity might, that those who rest upon what he's done and not in themselves any longer might have life and joy and satisfaction in him. The kind of bread they're seeking can't truly satisfy. After all, their forefathers ate the bread and they died, you guys. They ate all this bread. Sure, it was given daily, but eventually they died. They'd eat the bread. They grew hungry again. And we talked about this a little bit last week, right? Jesus is encouraging them not to, to live for bread that fades. He's telling them that is not a worthwhile pursuit. Physical bread, physical food is not a worthwhile pursuit. And it's only when we come to grips with that, right, that they ate the bread, they became hungry again. The reality of our need. Jesus is the bread that gives true life that will never fade, true satisfaction that alleviates all of our internal hunger forever, all through his mercies. And it's also only when we come to grips with this grace of God that our grumbling hearts, like, we need to come to grips with the reality of our need, but then we need to come to grips with the reality of the grace that's given for our need, because that's when our grumbling hearts are truly confronted. That's when we understand the reality that we can't save ourselves, that we can't merit any aspect of our life with God, that we can't set ourselves up as judge over God's word when we think we disagree, you know, when our culture disagrees. Rather than that, we now trust God's goodness 
Even when we don't understand, even when we read it and it's hard to read it first because it's so different from the culture in which we live or the things that we hear or, or read or see people say all the time. You know, the grumbling gives way to grace. But how could this be possible? Well, we saw a grumbling spirit brought about by reliance on God, a grace-centered response pointing to a reliance on God. And that brings us thirdly now to the great and only means of this grace, which is reliance at the cross. Jesus here shows us how he's made this possible. So starting in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, I want to read this whole section so we really get a sense of what, what this means for us. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So, so what's this all about? You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a couple of people last week after church, and they helped me see something that was true. Because, you know, we talk about this a lot. We tend to, we tend to judge the biblical characters in these stories rather harshly. We don't, we don't see ourselves in the story as much as we should. So like we talked about last week, right, it's really easy for us to be reading the scriptures and when the Jewish people come to Jesus and they're like, you know, well, what sign would you do that we might believe? A day after he feeds the 5,000, our response in reading that, you know, instead of seeing our foolishness, it's like we're just, we're doing our morning devos. We got our coffee and we're like, <laughs> those silly Jew, Jewish people, this crowd following Jesus, you know, and we just kind of laugh and, you know, and uh, I, I totally would have got it. But then we get to this section, it's like, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. All right, so this is genuinely maybe difficult to, to understand, right? So what's going on here? Uh, well, there, there are some who read this section and come to the conclusion that Jesus is actually primarily speaking about the Lord's table here. That it's hard to understand, but it's, it's, it's made easier to understand when we directly apply this to the table, all right? And I alluded to this last week a little bit. I said we'd talk about it more this morning. I want to argue, actually, that John 6 isn't about the Lord's table. But, and I'm not saying it's not appropriate to read at the Lord's table from time to time. It is. But the reason is because both the Lord's table that we see in front of us here and John 6 are about the same thing. They're both directly about the cross of Christ. In other words, this section of Scripture is often used as evidence of some kind of physical or tangible or real in some mysterious sense presence, the real presence view or mysterious presence view of Jesus himself in the juice or in the bread each week. And oftentimes the proponents of this view of kind of real presence will use John 6 and they'll say, well, you see, those who have a more remembrance-based view, it's, it's mere minimalism, they call it. This is mere remembrance. 
We're going to strip down the elements to just symbolism. But no, it's more than that. Look at what Jesus says here in this text. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood. He's talking about his flesh. He's talking about his blood. In some mysterious or real sense, it's present in the elements. You know, we also often talk about this under the heading of, it's called sacramentalism. The idea that the Lord has given the church these sacraments or sacred elements in order to dispense God's grace to his people. The only reason I want to address this is because in order to get to what it's about, I think it's important since it's such a common teaching for us to understand. I don't actually think that's the right way to talk about it. I personally don't prefer the word, the title sacrament, but instead ordinance. Here at the table, we have an ordinance from the Lord, a directive, an ordered, structured proclamation of gospel the same way we have at baptism. But whichever word you prefer to describe the table, I don't even get into a huge fight about it. It's difficult to use John 6, I think, as evidence that, that Jesus is somehow mysteriously present or has a real presence in the bread and cup, which tends to be the primary proof text, John 6, for such a claim. But there, there are several problems with the view. Um, I'm going to have to skip a few for the sake of time, but get to maybe the, the more pressing ones. The language in John 6 doesn't match up with the way the rest of the New Testament talks about the Lord's table. So, you know, if you, if you read what Paul writes or Matthew or Luke's account, you know, they don't, none of them, none of them across the board, when we're talking about the Lord's table, we'll read, take, eat, this is my flesh. Nowhere do we read that. It's take, eat, this is my body. You know, in every instance that we see. We could press in further here and say if Jesus was really interested in telling us about the table, making sure we understood that this was about his presence in the elements in some mysterious way, he could have used the same language that the rest of the scriptures use in every instance. If John was wanting to do that, he could have used the same language. Additionally, if John's focus was on the table, why not include a retelling of the Lord's table somewhere in John 14 to 17 when Jesus is at, is at the table with his disciples to point back to this moment why does he leave that part out? Some might say, well, it's because he already dealt with the table here in John 6. But I agree with Osborne. That presupposes what needs to be proven, right? It's just assuming that it's John 6 is about that without making any arguments. And the reason it presupposes is because it has to, I think it cuts against the evidence. Despite those problems, none of them stand as the biggest problem of all, which is that the context simply doesn't support that view. Because in Jesus' argument, listen to this. Eating and drinking has already been established and defined as coming to and believing. And this is important because, like, here we have a text in which Jesus is addressing self-reliance. And certainly the antidote for self-reliance won't be some thing that the church needs to practice and do and drink. Okay, listen, listen. He already said. He already said. So this is important to get to the heart of the matter. Eating and drinking is coming to and believing. So we talked about it last week, and, and I said I'd return to it, but Jesus is stepping in and out of metaphor. So he says, I'm the bread of life, so there's the metaphor. So remember verse 35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So you know, that's stepping out of the metaphor a bit, right? Because, and a lot of commentaries point this out, but hunger isn't alleviated by coming to bread or believing in it. You actually have to eat it, you know? In Jesus' way of speaking, the coming to is the eating. The believing is the eating. Eating and drinking 
are coming to and believing in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean then if it doesn't mean if we're not talking about the Lord's table? Doesn't that make John 6 even more difficult to understand because Jesus is saying, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. I do think it's hard to understand for, for a Western, industrialized, non-agrarian society because listen, given that we know, let's look at the context. Given that we know Jesus is saying eating and drinking is coming to and believing, within that context, here's what's being said. It's here that we find the center of God's grace, the great and only means that he's offered us. I read a few versions of this illustration, but the particular form I'm going to use is from D.A. Carson. I'm going to quote him at the end. Change it, modify it a little bit here, but this morning, you know, we're going to end our time together, you know, around 11.20, 11.15, 11.20, maybe 11.25, depending on how long this illustration takes. <laughs> and what are we going to do after that? What do we do next? We'll hang out for a bit here together. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, we're encouraging one another with the gospel, both before and after. You know, like I'd encourage you, come to church before church starts. The fellowship of believers, encouraging one another with this mission of gospel, this gospel grace that we have together. Speaking the gospel in one another's lives, even as we come in together to worship. And then afterwards, continuing that. Okay, so we'll do that. But then we'll go have lunch. Most of us will go have lunch. Some of us will go home for lunch. Some of us might say, hey, you know, to one another, and I encourage it. I say to one another, hey, you want to grab some food? Might go to Chipotle. Might go to a restaurant, sit down and eat. But wherever you go for food, do you know what everybody's going to eat? Dead chicken. Dead cow. Dead fish. If you're a vegetarian, dead vegetables, dead grain. You know, what you eat will have died, and it died that you might live. And this is really hard for us to understand and for children who grow up in a non-agrarian society to understand because we, you know, we just see the burger delivered. And then at some point later on in our lives, the, the, our parents tell us, you know, that's a cow. And we're horrified, right? <laughs> the kids are like, what? What am I eating? No, the grape was tread upon. Yeah, what, you, what you eat will have died, and it died that you might live. There are societies in which people still see their fathers go out with the axe in the morning and come in with the chicken, a dead chicken for, for supper. It died that we might live. The grape was tread upon that you might drink and live. The animal was killed that you might have life. Because your choices are actually to not eat the flesh, to reject that which died for you, and in doing so, die yourself. Or to eat what died for you that you might live and have life. So either we eat that which died so that we might live or we reject that eating and die. We don't do that and die. So it's very much a part of this in which Jesus is centrally proclaiming, I died that you might live. Either you eat my flesh, that is to say, you come to me by faith, you believe upon my name, either you... Come to me by faith, i.e. eat my flesh, and live or die by rejecting my death on your behalf. But that is the choice, right? In other words, this is centrally about the cross. I quoted New Testament scholar Colin Brown next week who said, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what's described in John 6. And I think that's exactly right. There's a reason the Lord's Supper takes the imagery that it takes. 
because both of them are centrally about the cross. Jesus' imagery here, the Lord's Supper's imagery, the Lord's table's imagery are the same. Why? Because they're both centrally about the cross. Carson's so helpful. I told you I'd quote him. He says, the fact of the matter is, even those of us who see some grace mediated by the institution in uh, which Christ himself has given cannot understand it as a means of grace that brings to us and gives to us eternal life in and of itself. In other words, these elements don't themselves in any kind of a mysterious way impart this kind of grace, the means of grace that gives us eternal life. He says that was precisely given by Jesus. And however much we might not like mere minimalism, you know, this mere remembrance, Carson says, we must remember that the distinctive command of the Lord himself with respect to the words of the institution was, do this in remembrance of me. For God help us, we need all the remembrances possible to bring us to the cross again and again and again and again. Thus, this rite that God has given repeated endlessly in the church brings us back again and again and again to first principles, first things, the cross itself, to Christ himself, and thus becomes for us a wonderful means of grace. Each week at the table, we have a means of grace offered. But do you know why it's a means of grace? Not because there's something inherently special about the juice and the bread, but rather because it's in this act of eating and drinking that we proclaim our faith. We proclaim the reality that our hearts came to Christ. We proclaim his grace and mercy. And listen, you can say mere remembrance. Yeah, mere remembrance. It's exactly what we need all the time. Do you want to know what my heart needs? My heart needs gospel remembrance every day. Do you want to know why? Because my heart is so prone to forget the gospel every day. And so it should not surprise us that the ordinance given to us by the Lord is to bring about gospel remembrance again and again and again. The table that we come to now is a means of grace for you. For the believer who's present this morning and proclaiming this, this is also a means of grace in a way for non-believers who we ask not to take the Lord's table, but as you watch, as you observe, as you see what's happening, you see this symbol of God's, Jesus' body broken for you, his blood shed for you. That it's true, you know, it's true that you couldn't do this on your own, that you were guilty of sin, of rejecting God, of standing in the place of judge over him. But by his grace and mercy and patience and love, he went to the cross so that you wouldn't have to, so that you might call upon him, that you might come to him. You know, he died that you might live. So there's this grace announced to you this morning. Believe upon his name. Believe upon his name. The bread and the cup at the table proclaim the great means of the grace of God. Reliance at the cross.